Open in your Bibles this morning to the 15th chapter of the book of Luke. Luke chapter 15 this morning, and I sort of uh, debated back and forth, prayed back and forth about what I, where I needed to start this morning. I know where I want to wind up, but I want to, I have to find out where I need to start. Somebody say amen. You ever felt like that in life? I know where I want to be, but I got to figure out where I need to start to get there. But there is one verse that I would like to read as you find your place in Luke 15. I'd like to read one verse to you out of the second psalm that I believe will give us a uh, springboard, although I don't like to use that term, a, a beginning place for what we're going to preach this morning. In Psalms 2 and chapter, or chapter 2 and verse 12, the psalmist says this, "...kiss the Son, lest he be angry, and ye perish from the way, when his wrath is kindled but a little." Blessed are all they that put their trust in Him. I want to read that again to you. Kiss the Son, lest He be angry, and ye perish from the way, when His wrath is kindled but a little. Blessed are all they that put their trust in Him. Father, we thank You for this time. Pray that You would bless the preaching of Your Word. Lord, I'm not asking them. I'm asking You this morning. That you, Lord, might give me the unction of the Holy Ghost in the preaching, Lord, not that I might have more of you, but that you might have more of me. Not that I might use you this morning, but that you might use me for your glory and for your honor. Gathered here in this place are a group of people that have at least resigned themselves to hear the preaching of your word for these next few moments. Lord, inasmuch as they're here, and I'm here, Lord, but more importantly, you're here, I pray that you would do in them the work that needs to be accomplished for your glory. Lord, I love you this morning. I don't love you how I ought to, and I don't love you like I want to love you. But I do want you to teach me to love you more. We ask these things in Christ's name. Amen. The second psalm gives us an interesting perspective on our approach unto the Lord Jesus Christ. As you read through the Word of God, you'll find time and again different different symbols, different phrases, different ideas that are used to describe the sinner's approach to the blessed Son of God. Sometimes it is spoken merely as a simple look, that we are to look unto Him and we can be saved. We can't help but think of the book of Numbers and the brazen serpent that was lifted up upon the pole that He might relieve and redeem those that were sin-sick and that were dying because of their murmuring against Moses And against God, my preacher used to say growing up that the big difference between the serpent on the ground and the serpent on the pole is that the serpent on the pole didn't have any venom. The serpent on the pole couldn't harm you, couldn't hurt you. He looked just like the serpents that were on the ground. Uh, But that serpent that was lifted up, made out of brass, brass symbolizes judgment in the Word of God. He was uh, made like unto his brethren, the Lord Jesus Christ was. Why? That the judgment of God might be poured out upon him. Uh, But in him was no sin. He knew no sin. He did no sin. There was no guile found in him. Uh, There was no uh, wickedness when he was reviled. He reviled not again. He was led as a lamb is done before her slaughters, so he openeth not his mouth. He had no venom. He had no sin. He had no ill will. But he was made sin for you and I. And now all we must do is look to him. And He'll save us. Sometimes in the Word of God, it's described as taking a bite of the bread of life. Partaking in the broken body of the Lord Jesus Christ. When we observe the Lord's Supper, uh, we oftentimes will note the fact that that bread is not the body of the Lord Jesus Christ. Uh, There is a, a heresy that is called transubstantiation. 
that the Roman Catholic and a few other denominations believe. They believe that that bread becomes the body of the Lord Jesus Christ. They believe that that uh, wine, and they drink fermented wine. We don't, and, and that's not because we're better. It's just because it's expensive. Somebody say amen. No, it, it, we, we don't drink fermented wine because fermented wine is not a, a, a clear type and picture and representation of the precious blood of the Lord Jesus Christ. Fermented wine is corrupted. It's polluted. You've got to let something sit and rot for a little while before you've got fermented wine. Besides that, Scripture prohibits the drinking of it. And uh, so we don't drink the fermented wine. But the, the Roman Catholics and a few other groups, they believe that, that that wine becomes the blood of the Lord Jesus Christ. Well, I don't believe that. I believe that right now the body of the Lord Jesus Christ is resurrected, is uh, seated at the right hand of the Lord God Almighty, expecting till His enemies be made His footstool, and He is ever living to make intercession for you and me. I think when we hold that little cracker in our hands, you know what I think we've got? We've got a little cracker in our hands, that's it. But it is a picture of the broken body of the Lord Jesus Christ. We can come and partake of the bread of life. We can ingest His death, His sacrifice for us. Sometimes it's described merely as taking a drink of water. Boy, there's, there's not much that's simpler than that, is there? Especially this time of allergies and scratchy throats and stuffy noses and running eyes. A lot of you, no doubt, will carry a bottle of water around with you. And it's just you don't even think about it. I mean, you just, you've got that bottle of water with you and you feel a little scratch in your throat. You just reach down and grab that, twist the top off and take a swig of that water. It took no effort to do that. It took no real planning to do that. You know what it took? You had to realize you was thirsty and realize there's water to drink. The Lord Jesus Christ, when we come to Him, that's one of the ways that it's likened unto, is that uh, we merely uh, take a drink of that living water that's been given for you and I. Of course, the Word of God teaches us that if thou shalt call upon the name of the Lord, thou shalt be saved, that you believe on the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, and thou shalt be saved. Time and again, there are different examples in Scripture of, uh, of language that is used to convey the idea of a sinner coming to Christ. But in the twelfth verse of Psalms chapter 2, we have one that is... Not necessarily prevalent in the Word of God, but I want to preach for a little bit this morning on this thought, kiss the Son, lest He be angry and ye perish from the way. The psalmist says that as we approach to the Lord, as a sinner comes contrite before the God of glory and the blessed Son of God, that it is likened unto Him coming forward and kissing the Son when He accepts the Lord Jesus Christ. I thought a little bit about what a kiss means, you know. It, it, uh, a kiss means one thing when you're uh, 15. A kiss means something else, I guess, when you're 50. Amen? And uh, the Bible talks about... Some of y'all didn't understand what I just said there. That, means either, that, that either means you're still kissing like you're 15 or you've never kissed like you're 15. Some, amen? The Bible talks about holy kisses. And uh, why don't we do that? In the church today, my preacher used to always say, nobody can keep it holy. Amen? And you know the difference between a, a holy kiss and a sensual kiss, don't you? About three seconds. Amen? We don't do that. We don't practice that very often in this day that we live in. But certainly there is a scriptural precedent for that. When we have the idea of a kiss, what does a kiss mean? Well, there's a few things you might associate with it. I, I jotted a few of them down. I'd say, number one, that a kiss carries with it the idea of adoration. I don't know about you, but I usually don't snuggle up to folks that I don't care nothing about. Usually a kiss is a way or a means to convey love and affection and adoration towards someone. It is a way to show that you care about them. It is a way to show that they are important to you. And let me say this, that when the sinner comes to Christ, he needs to come out of love. Listen, when I, when I got saved, I was afraid of dying and going to hell. There's no doubt about that. 
I knew I was on my way to hell. I won't say that I necessarily came only out of the love of God, but let me tell you something. It birthed a lot of love in my heart when I realized what Christ did for me. And more than me coming to Him and kissing Him because I loved Him, He came and He kissed my life because He loves me. I'd say it denotes the idea of of, uh, adoration. I'd say it denotes the idea of admiration. You say, well, what do you mean, preacher? Well, you see it oftentimes in a lot of cultures, but uh, oftentimes a a kiss will convey the idea of respect towards one person or another. Uh, You know, cultures are funny. I remember I always laugh. I see presidents walking around Middle Eastern countries holding hands with leaders of state. You ever seen that before? Apparently that's normal over there. In East Tennessee, that's not normal. Somebody say amen. But you see them sometimes. They'll be walking with world leaders, you know, like holding hands. And, and it's always so funny to see. I mean, just heads of states, the most powerful people in the world. And they're walking down, a, a, you know, swinging their arms, just enjoying a, a day. All, you know, cultures are different. It's not as common in our culture, but in a lot of cultures, and particularly at this time, to uh, kneel down to kiss the hand of uh, a person was a sign of obedience and admiration and reverence and respect. It was to denote the idea that they were bigger and higher and mightier than you were, and to acknowledge that you were lower and more humble and more meek than they were. Let me say, when I came to Christ, I didn't come to bargain. I came to be saved. Well, I, I don't believe anybody ever gets saved by coming to bargain with God. I know that the book of Isaiah says, Come, let us reason together. But what is the basis of that reasoning? He said, Though your sins be as scarlet. The basis of that reasoning is not that we've got anything to offer. The basis of that reasoning is that He's died in our place, and though our sins be as scarlet, they shall be white as snow. I didn't come bargain with God when I was a lost sinner. I, I, you know, and I know a lot of people that want to do that. They think if they join a church, that'll mean something to God. Or, 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 if, they, or if they go and, and, and they get baptized, that'll, that'll mean something to God. Or, or they think if they go and give to charity, that that'll mean something to God. But the reality is this, that what God is looking for is, in a lost sinner is not your service, it's your surrender. He wants to do for you what you can't do for yourself. We've preached on it a few times here lately, the past, past few services, but Isaiah says that our attempts at righteousness are but filthy rags before the eyes of God. And you know what we do when we come and we say, well, I'll join a church or get baptized or I'll do good works or I'll try to reform myself or I'll try to be better. We take those filthy rags and we try to shove them in the face of God and say, see, God, I am acceptable. The problem is it may look acceptable to us, but it don't look acceptable to God. It is repugnant to His nature and to His person. You know what he wants? He wants us to kneel, to bow the knee. Let me tell you something. You might as well bow it now because you're going to bow it one day. The name of the Lord Jesus, every knee should bow. Uh, You might as well bow it now in grace rather than to bow it on the great white throne judgment and to bow it in, in judgment. You might as well go ahead and bow the knee now and to make obeisance before him. I think it denotes the idea of admiration. I think it denotes the idea of assurance. You say, what do you mean, preacher? Well, I don't know about you, but I, uh, there's a few things in, in life that, you know, I, there's not a lot of things. I'm a married man, amen? So there's, there's not a lot of things that I, I kiss my wife, I, I kiss my little boy, I might kiss my mom on the jaw or, you know, something like that. But, uh, but you know, there's not a lot. But I'll tell you, there's a few things that, that you're never going to find me kissing. I'm never going to kiss a rattlesnake. I'm, ne- I'm never going to kiss a skunk. I'm never going to go down and kiss a lion. You know, used to, like a hundred years ago, you remember they used to have the lion tamers, and they'd open the lion's mouth, and, and they'd put their head. You ever seen that? And, you know, they don't do that no more. You know why, right? 
Because all them folks is dead. Amen? Because you can only do that so many times before God says, all right, that's enough of this. And just... You know why I don't... You know why I would never do that? I don't trust them. I don't trust them. I don't trust them. I'm about to make some of y'all mad here, but that's okay. I'll go ahead and give my opinion. If you ain't going to be excited, at least I can make you mad. Amen? As far as I'm concerned, a wild animal, an animal will always be a wild animal. You see it from time to time on the news. Some little baby get, get torn all to pieces by, by an animal, by a dog or something like that. I love dogs. We had dogs all growing up. But at the end of the day, that animal is still an animal. And, and, and you do whatever you want, man. I mean, if you, listen, if you want to lay down, let that dog eat things out of your mouth and do all that, that's your business. All right? Don't, I, don't, I don't have to hear about it, but it, it ain't none of my business. Okay? But I, it, best of my ability, I ain't going to let a dog do that with my little boy. You know why? Because at the end of the day, I still don't trust it. It may be a member of the family, but it's still a dog. It, it, it may be domesticated, but it's still a dog. <laughs> and there's a trust issue there. There's a trust issue there. There was a period of time when... And occasionally it still happens that, that people would, would try to get wild animals and raise them. And you see it occasionally. You know, people get tigers and raise tigers. How stupid is that? Going to get tigers and raise tigers. Or, or, or you see sometimes... You know, remember people used to get monkeys? You remember when that was popular? You know, everybody... Clint Eastwood drove, drove a semi with a monkey. Now everybody's got to have a monkey. Amen? And, you know, people get these like orangutans and chimpanzees and stuff. You ever seen somebody that one of them things turned on? Son, there ain't nothing left. I'm talking about nothing left. At the end of the day, it's still a wild animal. And I don't know about you. You do anything that you want, but me, I'll keep my distance, at least comfortably so. You know why? I don't trust it. I don't trust it. On the other hand, me and my wife, we're close. We, we, we kiss and snuggle and stuff. And, that, and if you don't, I'm sorry. But we do. I trust her. I trust her. Maybe I shouldn't. You know what she did one time? <laughs> I had like an infection in my eye. You can hear her over there, right? I had an infection in my eye. Not long before that, I'd had an earache. And we went to the drugstore, and we got, we got some, some earache, the drops that you put in. And I had, we had got done. You know, I had, the earache was gone and everything, and I took throwing them things in my nightstand drawer. Well, I, I had this eye, this eye thing, and they had given me drops to put in my eye because of it. And I had had those sitting like on the nightstand or in the nightstand or something. And I, and I was laying there. I woke up, my eyes, you know, like, you know, looking like a stuffed clam or something. And I said, honey, get those eye drops and help me and put some eye drops in here. And she said, okay, what do they look like? I said, I don't know. They look like eye drops. It's an eye dropper. And she, she got, and I, and I laid back, and, and she took and she, she dropped them in. And all of a sudden, my world caught on fire. And my eye felt like it was just going to explode. And I said, what would you do to me? And she looked and said, oh. <laughs> Let me tell you something. Eye drops are made for eyes. Eardrops are made for ears. And there's not a lot of tolerance in that. I mean, it, I don't know how it would feel to put an eye drop in your ear, but I know how it feels to put an eardrop in your eye. And I want to tell you that, they're, they're, I mean, it's not like kind of, you know, one or the other. I, you, you, they're not interchangeable is what I'm saying. <laughs> but I still trust her. Part of the reason I, I go hug up close on her, give her a kiss. I mean, she's pretty and all that. And, but, but part of it is I trust her. I trust her. I have an assurance that I know she's not going to hurt me when I draw close. Let me say, when I came to the Lord Jesus Christ, 
He gave me every assurance. He gave me every assurance. And I had every assurance. He wasn't there to hurt me. He wasn't there to harm me. You know, you know what some folks' problem, you know what some, some of your all's problems is? You think he's there to put chains off you, but he's there to take chains. You think he's there to put them on you. He's there to take them off you. You think you're going to get saved, and then all of a sudden life's going to get boring. Let me tell you, listen to some testimonies of some folks that know the Lord Jesus Christ. Life don't get boring. He, listen, he doesn't put the chains on. The chains are already on. He takes them off. There's nothing to be afraid of. I mean, what's worse? You're already on your way to hell. <laughs> I hear folks say sometimes, well, I don't want to scare them. In. I don't want to scare them away. Scare them to where? They're on their, already on their way to hell. They're already headed to hell. What I'm worried is about making them comfortable till they get there. I want them to see their need of Christ. I think a con- kiss conveys a lot of things in Scripture. It holds a prominent place. You'll find it time and again throughout the Bible. But there are three primary places in the gospel record that a kiss centers prominently in the narrative. And it's no surprise that they're all found in the book of Luke. The book of Luke presents to us Christ as the Son of Man in His humanity. And I want us to take a moment this morning and look at these three examples of kisses in the Bible. And I want us to maybe learn something about where we're at, where we need to be, and what Christ has done for us. You're there in Luke chapter 15. You've read the story multitudes of times. There's really no reason to read all of it. You've heard about how a certain man had two sons, an elder and a younger. You've heard about how this man of great wealth and power and prominence, his younger son came to him and said, Father, I want you to divide to me the portion of mine inheritance. You've heard the story of how he not long after took that money and went into a far country. He found him a crowd that was happy when he had money. He found him a crowd that was happy to be around him when things was going well. Let me tell you something. You know, oftentimes when a Christian gets out of the will of God, things don't get harder right away. Oftentimes they get easier right away. It's not till the end of the road that everything begins to fall to pieces. He takes daddy's money. He's sick of daddy's rules. He's sick of daddy's work. He's sick of daddy's expectations. He says, I'll just go do it myself. And uh, he had to be a teenager. Somebody say amen to that. Of course, I don't know. He might have been a 20-something or a 30-something or a 40-something. I've met a lot of them in those age groups that were that way. But he said, I can run my life. I can do it myself. He goes into a far country and he begins to really live. And then all of a sudden, the living runs out. And his money is no longer there. And he wasted his father's money and he wasted his living. And all of a sudden, the friends that he had have departed. He goes and joins himself to a citizen of that country, rendering himself, by the way, ceremonially unclean. And he makes himself a servant. Now, let me tell you something. He left home because he didn't want to be a servant. He left home because he didn't want to be a servant. But the world made him a servant far more than his father ever did. He thought he had it rough at daddy's house. (laughs) But he hadn't seen anything until the world got a hold of him. Let me tell you, some, I, some, I grew up in a Christian home. You know, one of the great dangers you grow up around the things of God is you think you've really got it rough. You think you really live in a prison. You think you've really had a hard time. Let me just take you down uh, to the hospital and show you folks laid up dying from putting a needle in their arm or putting booze in their belly. Let me go down and take you to the prison show people that whose lives are wasting away behind bars. Let me take you down to areas of town where you can find folks that are broken and beaten and ruined and, and wasted by the world. The world the world is a far worse taskmaster than the Lord is. 
said, I don't want to stay at Daddy's home. I'll go. But he joined himself to a citizen, and he was sent out into the fields to feed that man's swine. You've heard it said time and again that he would go out and eat what the swines ate. That's not what your Bible says. The Bible says he fain would have filled his belly with the husk which the swine did eat. He wanted what the pigs were eating, but his master wouldn't allow him to have any of it. And all of a sudden, look down at verse number 17. Something changes. The Bible says this, And when he came to himself, he said, How many hired servants of my father's have bread enough and to spare, and I perish with hunger? I will arise and go to my father and will say unto him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and before thee and am no more worthy to be called thy son. Make me as one of thy hired servants. Boy, isn't that interesting? He left home because he didn't want to be a servant. Now he's running home to be a servant. He left home because he thought he had it bad. Now he's running home because he realizes how good he did have it. You may just find that when you get out of the will of God, you realize how good you had it in the will of God. And he goes home. He's got everything rehearsed. He knows what he's going to say. He's going to see his daddy. He's going to see the frowning, angry face of his father. He's going to see his father as his face flushes, as his eyes burn with shame, as his heart breaks and rends in two to see his boy that has been driven so low. He can see the stern look upon his father's face as he looks at him and pronounces that there's no more bed for him anymore, that there's not a chair at his table anymore. But he knows what he's going to do. He's going to go home and he's going to say, Daddy, look, I know I've messed up. I know I've made a mistake. I know I walked out out on you. I walked out on your house. I walked out on your rules. I walked out on your life. I took all of this that you had blessed me with, and instead of using it for your glory, Father, I took it and used it for my glory and for my sin and for my shame as well. And now all that has been driven away, and I'm left penniless. And Daddy, I know I can't be a son anymore. But if you can just find a bed out in the servants' quarters... If you can just find just a little corner of a room where I can put a hay pallet someplace that I can pillow my head, Daddy, I'd love to be your servant in some way. He's got it all worked out. But things don't go the way he's hoping. He's got it all worked out. What goes wrong? Well, look what it says in verse number 20. The Bible says, And he arose and came to his father. But when he was yet a great way off, his father saw him, had compassion and ran and fell on his neck and kissed him. <laughs> and the son said unto him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and in thy sight, and am no more worthy to be called thy son. But the father said to his servants, Bring forth the best robe and put it on him and put a ring on his hand and shoes on his feet and bring hither the fatted calf and kill it. Let us eat and be merry, for this my son was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found, and they began to be merry. Let me say that in Luke 15, we find the kiss of restoration. He had left his daddy's home. He had spurned his daddy's love. He had wasted his daddy's living. And he had come back home broken and beaten. And he just knew how his daddy was going to act. You know why he knew that? Because he expected him to act that way because that's how all daddies acted. We have gotten so cushy in our Western culture. And it's not a bad thing. I'm glad we need to have compassion. You need to love your kids. Your kids are always going to be your kids. Somebody say amen to that. Your kids are always going to be your kids. And kids, your parents are always going to be your parents. They just don't change. You might as well love them. You might as well care for them. You might as well forgive them because they're not going anywhere. But uh, in the Eastern Bible times, things were a little rougher. What should have happened, listen now, what should have happened is that father should have dragged his son out in the middle of the city square, 
stood upon his neck and pronounced him a shame and reproach and no longer his son. And that daddy should have stepped away as the community took up stones in their hands and began to pummel the life out of that boy's body. That wasn't harsh. That was normal. You understand that? That wasn't harsh. That was normal. You understand if you had got what you deserved and if I had got what I deserved, to die and go to hell... Listen, I wish it was rare, but the sad truth is it's normal. We look at it and we say, boy, that's harsh. No, that's the reality. That's what's normal. If you live your life without Christ and if you die without Christ, that's where you're going. Like it or not, love it or not, hate it or not, believe it or not, that is your eternal destiny. The same God that hung the moon and the sun in the sky, the same God that flung all of creation into existence. Listen, the same God that causes creation to operate on a precise timetable, the same God that keeps the sun far enough away to keep from scorching us, but close enough to warm us and to allow our bodies to function, that same God is the one that is shared in His Word that the soul that sinneth, it shall die. That's what's normal. But aren't you glad that Daddy didn't do what was normal? That's why the son expected it. We look at that and we think, boy, he didn't think much of his father. No, that's how Daddy's acted. That was normal. And he comes in a far way off. You know what we find? We find three things. In giving this kiss, I want you to notice first off that the father looked for him. The father looked for him. The father never quit hoping that his son would come home. You may sit here today and think, God's give up on me. God, oh my, God hasn't give up on you. Everybody gave up on Lazarus. God hadn't give up on Lazarus. Lazarus was dead. He wasn't just asleep. He was dead. By this time, they said, Lord, his body stinketh. And some of you, you got loved ones, and that's what you think about them. It's too late for them. By this time, they stinketh. There's nothing left redeeming about their life. Surely they've gone too far. Surely God can't bring them back. The thing that you don't understand is you may quit looking for them, but God's still looking for them. That boy came down the driveway. I don't know where he expected his father to be. He said, I will go to my father. I, I, I think maybe that what he was saying is I'll go find him wherever he's at. Maybe he'll be in the barns. Maybe he'll be in the field. Maybe he'll be out with the servants. He's a busy man. He's got much to be about. He's got, oh my, he's got much to do. Surely I'll have to go and track him down and find him. Maybe I'll have to beg him for his attention. Maybe I'll have to wrap my arms around his legs and plead with him and, and drag him down and say, Daddy, would you just Give me a moment. Would you just listen to me? But what he didn't realize, his daddy wasn't in the field. His daddy wasn't in the barn. His daddy had a lot to do. But you know what his daddy was doing? He was standing on the front porch looking down that driveway just waiting at any moment for his son to come around the corner. God's got a lot to do. (laughs) But you know what number one is on his priority list? He's looking for you doesn't expend his energy whatsoever. He can hear every prayer that's offered. He can, listen, he can set up world leaders and he can take down world leaders. And all the while, you know what he's doing? He's looking for you. And he's waiting on you. His father looked for him, but his father still loved him. His father still loved him. After all that time, his father still loved him. We look at it and we think, you know, it probably wasn't very long. But if this man had enough money, the father, he had enough money that he had a home, he had a farm, he had servants, he had livestock. He had enough that this son, when he walked down the driveway, he didn't think he'd ever have to go back home. 
This man was of substantial and considerable wealth. And when he gave that, that, that half of his, of his living, when he gave that to his son, no doubt that was a vast amount of money. Probably a good amount of time had passed. It probably took the son a little bit of time to burn through all that. And maybe he thought to himself, surely, surely daddy doesn't still love me. Surely he's wrote me off. But what he couldn't understand is the kind of love that his daddy had for him. You know why? Because his daddy didn't love him because he did right. His daddy didn't love him because he, he, he had money. His daddy didn't love him because he, he, he served him. His daddy loved him because he was his son. Listen, if you're here without Christ today, I encourage you to, to come and to become a child of God. He came unto his own, his own received him not, John said, but to as many as received him, to them gave he power to become the sons of God. But if you're here today and you are a child of God, you say, surely God doesn't still, surely he doesn't care. Oh yeah, you, you know it in your head. You know it in your head. But in your heart, you worry and you falter and you, and you fail and, and you're fearful. You don't know whether God still loves you, but the reality is God never loved you because you was anything in the first place. God didn't love you because whatever promises you made. God didn't love you because whatever leaf you turned over. God loved you because God is love. God loved you because of who He is. Out of His abundant grace and love and mercy wherewith He loved us. That's why God loved you. He's not quit loving you. I want you to know it's not only did his daddy look for him and uh, love him, but in giving this kiss, his daddy lavished him. I, I know what, what most of us would have done. We would have said, well, son, I'm sorry. You spent that money. You spent that money. I can't, I can't dip into your older brother's money. That fatted calf that we're killing, that's from his flock. That robe, that's from his closet. That whole oh, man... <laughs> That ring, that's from his hand. I understand the typology don't hold through all the way. I understand the elder brother is in many ways a picture of Israel in their backslidden state. But can I just make an application here and say this? I'm glad that no matter what I squander, no matter what I waste, no matter what I, I frivolously uh, piddle away, no matter what mess I have made out of my life, that I've got an older brother. I'm an heir of God and a joint heir with Christ. And I have an older brother whose closet is full of robes, whose whose fingers are full of rings, whose flocks are full of fatted calves, and there's enough if I'll just come home. God can restore me. And listen, that which the locust hath eaten, God can restore. That which the canker worm hath eaten, God... You think your life is over, but if you'll come to Christ, what you'll find is it's just beginning. You think you've wasted it. You think you've missed the boat. But I'm here today preaching as a, as a preacher of the Word of God with a gospel that still saves, with a Word of God that's still powerful. And I'm here to tell you this morning, it's not too late. Whatever waste you've made of your life, God can make something for His glory out of it. And you might have made a waste, but He'll make a work out of it. Luke chapter 7 gives us another instance. In Luke 15, we find a kiss of restoration. In Luke chapter number 7, Jesus is seated at a man's house by the name of Simon. Simon is a Pharisee. Simon is a, is a righteous man, according to the world's standards. Simon is a wealthy man. And Jesus is seated at his table. He has been asked to come and to, to sit with this Pharisee. I do not know Simon's motives, but it's evident that he did not have the proper love for Christ by the rest of what we're going to read but for whatever reason, Simon wanted Jesus to come and eat at his house. And they go and they gather in that 
large room. And I don't know if you have ever seen a, a real accurate depiction of, of how they sat. I know you've seen the Last Supper picture, you know, and they're all sitting. It's like a big picnic table, like a park or something, you know. And, and everybody's sitting out, and they're all, you know, they're sitting on the one side. And uh, isn't it funny? There's nobody ever sitting on the other side. You ever notice that? <laughs> and uh, in the, uh, I guess it looked funny for everybody to be going, you know, like that. <laughs> Nobody's seated on the... But that's not actually how they would have been. Actually, what would have been typical in that day is there would have been a large table in the middle of the room. There would have been couches that would have gone all around the circumference of the table. And they would not have sat up, but rather they would have laid down and reclined on the left elbow. And they would have taken their feet and put their feet behind them as they laid on this couch. Their feet would have been facing the wall. There's Jesus and the disciples, and they are reclined out. And and I don't know what was happening. Scripture does not tell us. But we do know that this happened next, that a woman walks in. She walks into this room. They know her when they see her, for she has a reputation. And they know where she's been, and they know what she's done. And she's carrying a little box in her hands made out of alabaster. The Bible says this in verse 7, And behold, a woman in the city, which was a sinner, when she knew that Jesus sat at meat in the Pharisee's house, brought an alabaster box of ointment and stood at his feet behind him weeping and began to wash his feet with tears and did wipe them with the hairs of her head and kissed his feet and anointed them with ointment. We have in Luke 15 a kiss of restoration, but in Luke chapter 7 we see a kiss of reverence being bestowed upon the Son of God. When she walks in the room, they know who she is. They know her name. They've seen her. She is a woman with a reputation. I do not know. I'm sure some would would declare there to be vast and grandiose connotations behind the phrase sinner when it says she's a sinner. I'm sure they would try to let their imaginations run wild. But suffice it to say that for a person to be a sinner is a pretty awful and wicked thing. And they know who she is. And she comes in and around the outside of the, the couches would be the wall. And she goes... And she finds a place directly behind the feet of Jesus. And she does not say anything. She does not announce her arrival to the best of our knowledge. She doesn't say, this is who I am in the business that I am here for. For she does not want any attention placed upon her. She just wants to find a place at His feet. She stands there with the little box in her hands. And all of a sudden, as they're in the middle of their meal, and I'll tell you in a moment why it was not... It would have not arrested their attention necessarily for her to be standing. But she stands there and all of a sudden tears begin to flow down her face. And they begin to fall on his feet. She looks down and she sees the tears that have drenched his dirty and filthy feet. We know that because Simon did not offer him any water for his feet. No doubt walking in sandals throughout the the arid uh, desert climate, his feet would have been covered in filth and in muck and in grime. She looks down and she sees as her tears begin to make little streaks down his feet where the dirt is being washed. And she takes her hair, that long hair, and begins to wipe his feet back and forth and to wash the dirt off. She kneels down and she gathers the feet that would one day be pierced. And she begins to plant kisses upon them. When this happens, Simon thinks to himself, well, why is Jesus allowing such a thing to take place? You know why he allowed it? Because she was offering to him the greatest thing she could offer. 
She takes that alabaster box and that ointment, who knows how many weeks, months, maybe years worth, of living it had taken to purchase that ointment. And she begins to to pour it on his head, on his feet, and to anoint him with oil, which was a sign of reverence. Why did she do such a thing? Well, I want you to notice three things. I want to say in giving this kiss, she, number one, rendered herself a servant. Do you know why it would not have been odd for her to, or for somebody to come and to stand behind Jesus. We have no record of Jesus turning and looking and saying, why are you here? What are you doing? You say, well, He's the Son of God. He knows. But no one else turned and looked at this woman and said, why are you standing there behind the sex? The reason is because that was the place that the household servants would stand when a meal was being offered. Where they had a clear look at the plate of the person that they were watching over, where they could see when when their food got a little low, when their drink got a little low, and they were there and ready at any moment to step in and to be of service. You know what the first step is to rendering to God the reverence and respect and love He's owed? Is you've got to take your place as His servant. You know what Christ said? He said, if you love me, keep my commandments. We live in a day of Facebook Christianity. Facebook Christianity is a mile wide and a quarter inch deep. Facebook, and I'm not against Facebook. I got, I hate Facebook, but I'm not against it. Amen. There's lots of things I hate, but I'm, I'm not against. I, I hate Brussels sprouts, but I guess God put them here for some reason. I, I hate Facebook, but I'm on it and we use it and it's a help to the ministry and everything, but I, I don't like it. I, I take breaks from it now. I try to not get on there very often. I was singing the other day. I, I was in such good spirits and I got on Facebook and I started looking down at the stuff that people post, the stuff that people says. People are supposed to love God. People are supposed to be serving God and it just sucked the joy right out of my heart. I just, I clicked on the little log out button. I said, forget that. I'm, I'm done with that. I'll just get in my Bible where I'm encouraged. Amen. But, you know, we live in a day of Facebook Christianity where, you know, I mean, on one second, you know, folks are just cussing up a storm, posting all kinds of nonsense. And the next time, here's, here's a real beautiful picture of a Bible verse, you know. See, it's a mile wide, but it's only a quarter inch deep. There's really nothing to it when you get down to it. This wasn't the kind of Christianity this woman had. This wasn't the kind of salvation and service this woman had. She Listen, she didn't have to be there that night. She didn't, there were, there was a lot of places she could, you know why she was there? She heard that Jesus sat at me at Simon's house and she said, I just want to be where he's at. You know why you ought to come to church? Not because you have to, but because you want to be where he's at. You know, you know why you ought to read your Bible? Not because you have to, but because you want to be where he's at. You want to go and offer yourself a servant up to him. Lord, I'm here and I'll do anything you'd have me to do. In giving this kiss, she rendered herself a servant. Look at verse 39. I want to say number two. Not only did she render herself a servant, she stood at his feet behind him. But the Bible says she was weeping in verse 38. She was weeping and began to wash his feet with tears. What was she crying about? What was she so broke up about? Well, Christ tells us. Look at verse 39. Now, when the Pharisee, which had bidden him, saw it, he spake within himself, saying, This man, if he were a prophet, would have known who and what manner of woman this is that toucheth him, for she is a sinner. Truth is, he did know. Amen? He did know. Come on, he did know. He knew what you were, too. He knew what she was. Jesus answering said unto him, Simon, I have somewhat to say unto thee. And he said, Master, say on. There was a certain creditor which had two debtors. The one owed 500 pence and the other 50. And when they had nothing to pay, 
he frankly forgave them both. Tell me, therefore, which of them will love him most? (laughs) Simon's Pharisee mind, he answered and said, I suppose. That's dumb, isn't it? I suppose. I suppose he knew where he was going with it. Well, I, I guess, I suppose, <laughs> I suppose that he to whom he forgave most. And he said unto him, Thou hast rightly judged. And he turned to the woman and said unto Simon, Seest thou this woman? I entered into thine house. Thou gavest me no water for my feet. <laughs> but she hath washed my feet with her tears and wiped them with the hairs of her head. Thou gavest me no kiss. But this woman, since the time I came in, hath not ceased to kiss my feet. My head with oil thou didst not anoint, but this woman hath anointed my feet with ointment. Wherefore I say unto thee, her sins, which are many, are forgiven. For she loved much. But to whom little is forgiven, the same loveth little. I want to say, number one, she rendered herself a servant. But number two, and this is why she was weeping, she remembered her sins. (laughs) She was a sinner. Everybody knew it. And she knew it, too. Everybody knew her reputation. She knew her reputation, too. There was no mistaking. She could not proclaim or pretend that she wasn't as bad as the next guy, because truth is, she's worse than most. But as she stood there, and by the way, he's not saying he forgives her because she loves him. He's saying she loves me because I've forgiven her. And there sat Simon with his... 50 pence debt that he had owed. And he sat back and said, What is this nonsense? Oh, but there was this woman with tears rolling down her eyes. And maybe if it had just been 50 pence, it would have just been a little sniffle. Maybe if it had been a 100 pence, she would have squeaked her voice a little and lost her breath a little. Maybe if it had been 200 pence, she would have hung her head as she thought about all that Christ had done for her. But honey, this wasn't no 50 pencer. This was a 500 pencer. She didn't just have a few years of sin. She didn't have a few skeletons in the closet. There was a pouring out of her history. And she knew what she had been. She knew what she had done. She saw the vileness of her sin. But she saw the blessed Son of God that had loved her even though she was wicked. Had loved her even though she was vile, had loved her even though she was worthless, and she counted every single cent of that 500 pence with the teardrops that fell at his feet and said, oh my, I've got much to be thankful for. You know, you know, when, if you're going to give him the kiss of reverence, you've got to render yourself a servant, but too, you've got to remember your sins. We spent a little time, buddy, and we've, we've got ourselves cleaned up, you know. We've got our Sunday suit, and we've got our King James Bible. We've got our hair just right, and we, we come in, and, and uh, you know, we work in the church. We labor. And I'm not criticizing any of that. God bless you. I commend you for that. But sometimes when we get painted up real good, we think we're not what we used to be. We think that, we think that, that history never was. I'm thankful. Listen, though God will remember our sins and iniquities no more, we better be careful that we don't forget what we once were. That God has forgiven us and saved us. I want to say she remembered her sins, but then I like this. Number three, she rejoiced in her Savior. You know what? You know what she was doing when she kissed his feet and when she anointed his head with oil? She was just wanting to show him how much that he meant to her. 
I mean, listen, most of us would never kiss somebody's feet. And in fact, it is typically seen as a sign of contrition and humility and humiliation if someone was to say, get down and kiss my feet. But it didn't bother her because she knew who Jesus was. It didn't bother her to be made a fool for the world because she knew who Jesus was. It didn't bother her to be made a laughing stock for those that were in that room because she knew who Jesus was. Hey, John may have been leaning on his bosom, but this woman was laid at his feet. <laughs> and you know what Jesus said to Mary and Martha when one of them was at his, at his uh, table and one of them was at his feet? She said, he said, she hath chosen the, the good part, the better thing. God bless you if you're at his table. God bless you if you're on his bosom. But I want to be at his feet. I want to be made a fool for, for Jesus Christ. You say, well, you're doing pretty good, preacher. <laughs> well, good. <laughs> good, that don't bother me. Paul said, if we be beside ourselves, it is your sake. He, he, he said, we are made a fool for Christ's sake. It don't bother me to embarrass my flesh. It bothers my flesh, but it don't bother my spirit. You know why? Because he deserves it. He's worried. You, you say, well, I don't know. You ever thought about the fact that she washed his feet with her hair? Why is that significant? Was there not a rag somewhere? Surely there was. Was there not a towel? If she brought an alabaster box, surely she could have brought a towel and girded it around her waist. No, you know why she did that? 1 Corinthians 11.15 tells us this, that a woman's hair is her glory. <laughs> she just wanted to give him all the glory she could. Women, you know, that's one of the things older women always say oftentimes. I'm going to get into trouble saying this, but a lot of times older women, I've heard them say time again to younger women, take care of your hair. Right? Take care of your hair. How many times have you heard an older woman look at a young woman and say, Boy, what beautiful hair. I remember when I had hair like that. I, I remember when I had hair like that. I remember when I used to wear my hair real long like that because I remember when I had hair like that. And, and it's almost like a bragging right, you know. We'll, we'll be watching TV sometimes and one of these guys will come on. I, and I don't know who any of them are. Me and Dad were talking about it the other day. I, I, I never think a guy's attractive, but I, I can tell when a guy looks like what the world says he's attractive. You know why? Because he looks purty. You ever seen a guy and just thought, man, he's purty, you know. He's purty. I, 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 don't, I, don't have, I don't have a queer bone in my body, but I can see when a guy looks purdy, you know. And we'll be, we'll be sitting around and we'll be watching TV or something. One of these guys will come through and they've got the hair, you know. they got that Fabio hair. And, they've got, and it's beautiful. And my wife will look and say, man, he has beautiful hair. <laughs> Ladies, you ever seen a guy with hair that made you jealous? You thought, what is he doing to his hair? I need to get with him and find out what he's got going on. To women, it's a bragging right. To women, it's their glory. It's the thing that they adorn, that they walk around, and the whole world sees it. The whole world sees it. The whole world sees it. And it's identifiable. It's their identity. I, I mean, listen, you ever, you ever confused a, a, a guy? I have... Lord, help me to say this. You ever been walking down the street and you thought, look at that girl going by. And then it turned around. There's a reason you thought that. I'm not being ugly, but there's a reason you thought that. We typically identify men as having short hair, women as having long hair. That's typically what we would identify. She said, I want all of my glory. I want all of my identity. I want everything. When people see me, 
I want to take that glory. I want to take that hair. And I want to take and wipe the feet of the Savior. I want them, when they look at me, to see somebody that will wash the feet of the Savior. I want them, when they look at me, I want to give everything that I've got to Him that I might lift Him up as being worthy and holy. We've got one more this morning, and I'll share this in close. We see that she remembered her sins and rendered herself a servant. We see she rejoiced in her Savior. But turn with me to the 22nd chapter of the book of Luke. And we see one final kiss. In Luke 15, when the prodigal comes home, we see a kiss of restoration. In Luke 7, when the woman stands and weeps at his feet, we see a kiss of reverence. But in Luke 22, we have a a story that doesn't end quite so well. Judas was one of the twelve. There's no question he was one of the twelve. Judas was not a saved man. The Scripture is very clear about that. But he had been one of the twelve disciples. For three and a half years he had walked with Christ. But at some point, Judas got disillusioned. Judas was a money-minded man. You understand that every time in the Bible when there's a narrative concerning him, his focus is on the temporal. On the temporal. He's worried because, hey, we didn't get this money and give it to the... He didn't care about giving it to the poor. He had the, the Bible says he had the bag. You know what I found? <laughs> oh, man. I found that typically folks that are money-minded want to hold the bag. Right? One of the things I appreciate about Brother Larry, he's our treasure, and he'll give anybody that job that'll take it. Somebody say amen to that. You know why? He ain't money-minded. He ain't money-minded. Money-minded people, they want to hold the bag. They want to count every coin. They want to see every little, I mean, they want every T cross, every, I mean, we ought to be good housekeepers and we ought to be good stewards. Somebody say amen to that. But money-minded people, they want to hold the bag. They want the power. They want the, the purse strings. That's how Judas was. Judas wanted the bag all the time. And Jesus had been promising a kingdom. To Judas, that meant that he was going to be a, a member and a part of that kingdom. He was going to sit on the throne. He was going to have power and influence and lands and authority. But the thing that Judas could never understand, because when you're constantly looking at the temporal, you miss the eternal. When you're constantly looking at the temporal, you miss the eternal. A lot of folks, listen, a lot of folks spend their whole life trying to make a good life and a good living for their kids, and their kids wind out up out in the world and in the ditch and dying and going to hell. You know why? They spend all their time looking at the temporal and never looked at the eternal. He missed the eternal. What he couldn't understand is that this kingdom was not of this world. If it was, Christ's servants would have fought But they didn't because the kingdom was not of this world. Judas decides he's going to make money one way or the other. He has seen Jesus escape the clutches of the Sanhedrin time and again. And he decides that maybe there's a way that he can make a little money, sever his relationship with this Jesus of Galilee who is taking him nowhere as far as this world is concerned, and still not do a lot of harm. And I think you might believe different, but I believe Judas expected Jesus would get away. The reason I believe that is because a man that intends on Jesus being crucified wouldn't have uh, seen that he had betrayed innocent blood and gone out and hung himself. I think he thought it was going to work out well. The chief priests send out word. They say, we'll pay good money to anybody who will give us an opportunity to catch this Jesus of Nazareth. Judas says, that sounds pretty good to me. And he goes in and they begin to talk and they set a price. Thirty pieces of silver to be paid to Judas they count out the money. By the way, it was shekels. That was the, that was the money of the temple. They took, that was the money they bought sacrificial lambs with. They counted out 30 pieces of sacrificial money. Said, here you go, Judas. 
How are we going to get him? Judas said, well, I've got an idea. I do not know where he's going to be at all times. But once I find a place, I'll come to you and I'll give you word. But this Jesus, he's a dangerous character. He, he tells me that he's got legions of angels waiting at his command. I've seen him raise the dead. I've, I've seen him open the eyes of the blind. And you need to bring, listen, you need to have an army with you when we go to get him. But I don't want to get caught in the crossfire, so here's what I'm going to do. When I see him, I'm going to go up and approach him as a friend. And I'm going to plant a kiss upon his cheek. And whoever I kiss, that's him. He said, take him and hold him fast. Luke 22 gives us this narrative in scriptural truth in verse number 47. When it says, And while he yet spake, behold, a multitude, and he that was called Judas, one of the twelve, went before them and drew near unto Jesus to kiss him. But Jesus said unto him, Judas, betrayest thou the Son of Man with a kiss? In Judas we see the kiss of rejection that is placed upon the cheek of the Son of God. How tragic it is that a man that could get close enough to kiss the door of heaven could still die and go to a devil's hell. That ought to be a sobering, sobering reality to you and I as we sit in a church house this morning. That a person that had walked with the Lord, a person that had dwelt with the Lord, a person that had seen His miracles. He had seen Him raise Lazarus from the dead. He, he had heard His teachings. He had heard the truth drop from His lips. He had been part of that company. That somebody that close could have never accepted Christ in their heart of hearts. With this kiss, we see that He spurned the witness of the Savior. For three and a half years, Christ had poured truth into Judas's life. Judas was without excuse. He had heard the same truth that took Peter out of a fisherman's boat and made him a pillar of the church at Jerusalem. He had heard the same truth that had taken James and John and caused John to be the beloved disciple whom God caught up into the third heaven and showed the glories of the book of Revelation. Uh, he had seen the same truth. Listen, the problem wasn't that he didn't have truth in his life. The problem was he never received it. And with this kiss... One final action of affection. He pushed away the witness of the truth of the Son of God. He spurned the witness of the Savior. Let me say, too, that he, he showed his worth of the Savior. Thirty pieces of silver. That's the price in Exodus twenty-one thirty-two. If a, if, if a man's ox gored a, another man's slave, that was the price that was to be recompensed. He sold him for the paltry sum of a common slave because that's all that he meant to him. That's all that he meant. You know, there's a lot of folks sitting in a church house and they say, I don't have time for this foolish. There's a lot of folks sitting in a church house They say, that's good for some folks, preacher. That's good for them weak folks. That's good for them folks that need those fairy tales. But it just don't mean much to me. Let me tell you something, my friend. It better mean something to you. Because you'll be judged according to this book one day. You know, when Judas... By the way, it does not tell us who named the price. I think the priests named the price. I think they named the price because they saw Jesus as nothing more than a common slave. And I think, listen, I think Judas would have asked more, but he'd take as little as he could. You know why? Because he wasn't just selling Jesus, he was really selling himself. You've heard it said before that every man has a price, right? Right? 30 pieces of silver. 
was Judas's price. You know, when he, when he sold Jesus as a slave, he sold himself as a slave. Let me tell you something this morning. When you spurn the Son of God, when you push Him away, and you might do it with a kiss. You might do it with all the morality and religion in the world. But when you push Him away, you're pushing away your only hope. And when you sell Him to the cross, you're selling yourself to hell. He showed His worth of the Savior. But I want to say, number three, and I'm done, that He secured the woes from the Savior. Christ made this statement. And He made it several times in His ministry about various things. But in uh, Matthew 26, 24, Christ said this, The Son of Man goeth as it is written of Him. But woe unto that man by whom the Son of Man is betrayed. It had been good for that man if he had not been born. Christ was going to be betrayed. Listen carefully. I believe God knew Judas was never going to accept Christ. I believe Christ knew Judas was never going to accept Christ. Isn't it something that Christ loved him for three and a half years the same way He loved the other disciples? Judas didn't even know He was going to be the one to betray Him until He betrayed Him. Christ knew that woes were going to come, but Judas made a personal decision. Let me tell you something. Folks are going to die and go to hell. I'm not. I, listen, I, I'm not a universal. Folks are going to die and go to hell. I'm aware of that. But that don't mean you have to die and go to hell. Somebody was going to betray the Son of God. And certainly God knew that it would be Judas. But Judas did not know that. And Judas made a personal decision. Christ had already said, offenses are going to come. But woe unto that man by whom the Son of Man is betrayed. It had been better if he had never been born. How could God say such a thing? Judas thought it was all going to work out. I'll get my money. I'll get free of these disciples. And Jesus will get away. And everything will be fine. But it didn't work out that way. You know what the Bible says in the book of Acts, chapter 1, verse 25? The Bible says that Judas went unto his own place. We understand that in some ways that's indicative of the field that the priests used to buy uh, that the priests use Judas's money to buy. But we understand also that it's indicative of the fact that Judas died without Christ. Christ said uh, that all that the Father hath given me I have not lost, save one, the son of perdition, that the Scripture might be fulfilled. He looked at the disciples, and you know what he said? He said, one of you is a devil. That wouldn't be me, preacher. Why? Why couldn't it be you? Do you think Judas was supernatural? Do you think Judas was somehow the spawn of Satan? I understand Satan entered into him. But do you not think Judas had a mother? Do you not think Judas was a little child just like you and I have been? He walked with the Savior. He heard the truth. He didn't have to push him away. But to this day, you'll not find people naming their child Judas because of the great reproach that that name carries with it. He has forever been marked and cursed and the greater curse than that that society could put on him is that which the spiritual side of things, that which hell has placed upon him for this morning, this morning, this morning, if you could pull back the veil and the curtains of hell, there you'd find Judas screaming in torment. Why? Because he gave Christ the kiss of rejection. He was close enough. He had heard enough. He could have trusted I don't think Judas was a bad man in the sense of morality or social standards. But when faced with what he would do with Christ, 
He said, I'll have none of that. And he pushed him away. 